I basically saw incredible potential and it's a lesson I think for anyone going into any new job, you know, enter it with awe and excitement and what you can see instead of all the challenges you're going to have. And if you start with that positive mindset, I think it leads you to keeping that positive mindset no matter how many challenges uh, throughout, throughout your tenure at any institution. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious U, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious U is a production of Chellip, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about Chellip, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash academics and select centers of excellence. everyone, and welcome to this first episode of Ingenious Hue. I am delighted to have as our very first guest, Dr. Carol A. Leary. At the end of this academic year, Carol is retiring as the president of Baypath University after 25 years. Her career in higher education has spanned four decades, culminating in an incredible ride at Baypath, where under her leadership, the institution has been transformed on every level. Today, Baypath enrolls more than 3,400 students, up from the 450 students who greeted Carol when she first arrived at Baypath many years ago. Baypath has been recognized by the Chronicle of Higher Ed as one of the fastest growing private baccalaureate and master's institutions in the United States. Full disclosure for our listeners, I've had the privilege to work closely with Carol at Baypath over the past several years, and so I anticipate this is going to be a bittersweet conversation. That being said, I can't imagine anyone more uh, qualified, better suited for this first uh, episode on our podcast to talk about, share her wisdom, her insights about leadership and innovation. So Carol, thank you for being our guest today. Melissa, I am so honored to be your first guest. And uh, again, for full disclosure, it's been my privilege to work with Melissa Morris Olson for, well, actually since 2006 and in the last 10 years as our extraordinary provost. So thank you, Melissa, for your leadership. And I am so proud to be on your very first podcast. Well, thank you. Now, you have had an amazing career and your last 25 years as president has been nothing short of extraordinary. I 
I imagine our listeners would like to know where your journey began and how you got into higher education in the first place. Well, this could be a long story, but I'll try <laughs> to make it a, a short one. Um, as a political science undergrad at Boston University, I was set to enroll in graduate programs in international relations upon graduation. But I was an RA at Boston University in one of their residence halls. And it was my head resident who approached me in February of my senior year, once all my applications for grad school were done and said, have you ever thought about going into the field of higher ed? At the time, I did not realize there was a profession mm. that I could pursue. And that one question led me to then search out programs. And I completely did a turn around and entered in July of the year I graduated from college into a program at the State University of New York at Albany. And that was the journey from being a, a resident assistant to entering the field. And I have never looked back. Wow. And the rest is history, right? Yes. Uh, boy, and you know, that's such a great lesson for college grads. And we've got the class of 2020 all graduating right now, going out into a very uncertain future. Um, that's, that's a wonderful lesson for our graduates uh, to keep in mind in terms of how does one get on a career path, right? Yes, and I think there is research, especially for your listeners who are, you know, considering higher ed as their future profession as well. There is research that shows that it is oftentimes a single question from a faculty member or staff member that determines the path of a student and that many CEOs and leaders in our country can reflect back and remember the moment of the question from yeah. an important person in their life. And so yeah. I will never forget Alda Spencer. And I'm sure that many people in your audience all remember the moment when they made their career choices and who was influential. Mm, for sure. And I had a similar experience. So that really, that really resonates. You know, the other thing I had forgotten is that you started in residence life. So did I. My very first job in higher ed was as a resident hall director for a freshman men's dorm of 150 students. And I often will say that everything I learned that I needed to know about managing higher education, I learned in that residence hall in kind of an odd way. So you probably can relate to that. I can relate to it. And your career path is so similar, Melissa. So interesting. So, so did you ever think in those early days that you might one day be a president and you know because your bay path was your first presidency is your first presidency and i'm i'm just curious was that ever on the radar um and how did you get to bay path how did that uh how did that connection happen it was never on the radar uh, once i entered the field of student life and student affairs and not being a faculty member uh, when I was, this is now four decades ago, when I was a young professional, pretty much the only path to a presidency was through being a faculty member and a dean and a provost. That was not my trajectory. My trajectory was on the student life side. So that really never crossed my mind. Um, I was fortunate enough through my career to have great mentorship, uh, both men and women. 
And when I arrived at Simmons College as a young professional in my early 30s, I was immediately mentored by one of the vice presidents who made a, a major impact on my career. And that's when I got into more of the administration. I was promoted to an associate dean of the college where I had uh, relationships with the faculty and bridged and served as a liaison between the dean's office and the faculty on many projects at the university. And when I became the VP for administration at Simmons, and it was a circuitous route to get there, uh, with moves to Washington for my husband's career and then back to Boston, uh, at, in that position as VP for administration, again, the president there gave me many opportunities to work on the budget, and I oversaw the budget, as well as worked in the human resources office, the advancement office, worked with the deans in strategy and planning. And he was the one who really encouraged me to think about it, even though I still was suggesting to myself it was not a pathway. But he really suggested that it could be possible. And then his successor was very instrumental in encouraging that as well. Mm. So another important leadership lesson, the value of mentorship. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And there's, I mean, we could, we could have a whole podcast just to unwrap what, what you just shared in terms of um, how you, how your career path evolved and the importance of a mentor who, who sees things in you and opens doors and gives you opportunities. Um, but but it, it, the, op, the experience that you had then at Simmons really opened the door for you to um, consider presidencies. And lo and behold, you arrived at Bay Path. And I'm, I'm curious, and I know a little bit about this story from, from having heard you tell it, but I, I think our listeners would be interested in, in, in hearing your take on what you found when you first arrived at Bay Path and what was going through your mind. Um, here you are, a newly minted president, first presidency, and uh, you wind up in Western Massachusetts on this little campus, and and what were you thinking? Well, I, 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 I guess, and you've heard me say this, Melissa, I saw incredible potential. I was not fearful about the numbers, even though I was leaving an institution that had 5,000 plus students, almost 6,000 from uh, you know, undergrad all the way through doctoral programs. So when I arrived and found an undergraduate institution of all women like Simmons, but only 450, the only thing I saw was potential. I had mm -hmm. great interviews with the search committee. I saw the passion and the commitment of the faculty and the staff and the students who interviewed me. And I had a sense they were eager uh, for change. They were eager for a future. And I also maybe sensed, but just a little, fear. Because with 450 students, I'm sure they were thinking, you know, what is this new president thinking and where are we headed? But I, I basically saw incredible potential. And it's a lesson, I think, for anyone going into any new job, you know, enter it with, awe and excitement mm -hmm. and what you can see instead of all the challenges you're going to have. And if you start with that positive mindset, I think it leads you to keeping that positive mindset, no matter how many challenges uh, throughout 
throughout your tenure at any institution? Mm, boy, well, and obviously that mindset set the stage for an incredible trajectory, um, both for you and for the institution. And as you look back now over the past 25 years, I'm, I'm curious how you account for the success that the institution has had, especially considering um, it hasn't all been a straight line upward. You know, you've been president during um, some periods where the economy has been up and down, um, nothing like the current moment, you know, with the pandemic, but you have faced your share of challenges. And so I'm, I'm curious uh, what, how you account for Bay Pass success and what lessons might be drawn from from your experience? Well, I think the the one I just ended with uh, probably helped me tremendously, and that is having a positive mindset about mm. planning and thinking about a future. But when I am asked about the success of APATH, I always say it was the executive team that I hired and the incredibly um, nimble faculty and staff that allowed for the transformation of Bay Path University. And the other element that I think is absolutely critical uh, to the success of Bay Path has been the strong board that we have had and their willingness to risk. And when I suggest risk, you mentioned all the key points along the way. And when we had reached one of the lowest points in 2001 during the recession and right after September 11th, another recession in 2008, there were many times when even the executive staff of, of the university were thinking, should we go co-ed? Um, you know, maybe we should just be a graduate school. I mean, there were so many moments when the mission of an all women's institution was questioned and when I look back now and realize that today, 60% plus of all college students are women, if we had made that decision, I don't know where we would be. We retained our, our focus on our mission. We always had plans and financial plans that paralleled them, but it was the execution of the team and the faculty and staff that I really credit the success of BayPath. Well, and it, it sounds like you're also wired to um, be able to both see the short term and the long term at the same time, because that that decision to stay women's focused, as you say, could have could have you could have gone co-ed as many schools did, but you you chose to to stay the path, and that has turned out to be a very good thing for Bay Path. Um, and so, how how do you balance those two things? So the, the short term in terms of what's right in front of you with going to the balcony, if you will, and, and being able to, to see things in a broader, broader context. Well, I think we could always, um, when, you, when you think about short term, you, could, you, can get, um, you can get into the weeds, which I've been accused of many times. I, I am a very detailed oriented person. And in those early years, I had to have my hands on everything. And I've been accused of still having my hands on everything, which you can't now that we're a university and we're so much bigger. But um, I think the notion of balance, as you suggest, is very, very critical. I do think that if you are the head 
supervisor of a division, if you are the president of a university or a company, in that role, vision is probably the most important thing you always have to have in front of you. And if you always are looking to the future, you can handle the daily challenges because you probably, I hope, have hired the, the right staff to be your support. But I do believe that if you are in a leadership role, you must always be thinking about the future. You, you need to uh, be reading, understanding trends, listening to people. I always think of Peter Lynch at uh, Fidelity when he was investing. Mm -hmm. He would watch what his wife was buying in the supermarket and then he would say, let's invest in this. It's, it's a similar mindset for always having mm -hmm. a vision for the future. But it's execution. You can have the best vision, but you have to be able to execute. And that is why the people you surround yourself with, who I always say are smarter than I am, are the people that you will need to depend upon to reach that vision. Mm. Well, and you also are really skilled at bringing um, the outside in to your team. And again, from having worked so closely with you, I know you are a, a, an avid reader of everything. You know, yeah. you're, you're always scanning, um, you know, what is being written by experts in higher ed and you're constantly disseminating what you're learning and reading from others. And um, I, I don't know if that's something you've always done, but that certainly seems to be an important um, an important attribute for a leader as well, because you're constantly infusing this steady stream of, of thinking from the outside. Absolutely, Melissa. And I, I have often said to people, I am a very curious person. I read, mm -hmm. I read junk mail. <laughs> I, I not only read my educational journals and I am an avid reader of the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed and Academic Impressions and AAC and U Liberal Magazine. I, I am an avid reader, but I, I do read everything that crosses my desk. And then, as you said, disseminate it. And I would suggest that you are a very similar leader in, in all the articles that you send. You, you, you know, they accuse higher ed of being an ivory tower. You will not be an ivory tower if you're constantly looking externally and you're listening to politicians and you're listening to your, you know, your um, prospective students and what they're asking for. I mean, the reason we have forensic science and what we're one of the very first institutions is because a young staff member on the road was listening to what students wanted as majors, came back, put that into the hopper at a meeting with her supervisor who then brought it to the table. So it's not just the leader. The leader has to, as, as you suggest, send those out to individuals and then they get into the habit of reading and becoming a better listener to trends. You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed your dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation, status behind with Baypath University. Our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies ABD degree completion program offers qualified candidates with the opportunity to finish what you started. 
Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and the executive management skill set you need to lead and transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD Degree Completion Program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. From the very beginning, you'll be matched with a faculty advisor and a small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and support. With Baypath University, there is no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of education leaders. For more information, visit our website at www.baypath.edu slash academics slash graduate programs. Don't wait any longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. So let me switch gears here a little bit. Um, you've been involved, I know, in mentoring new presidents through the Council of Independent Colleges New Presidents Institute. And so I know you've done a lot of thinking about how to prepare new presidents in particular for success. For new presidents who are just now coming into their role here in the midst of this pandemic, uh, what, what advice would you offer? Great question. And I... I probably enjoyed that as one of the top um, positions on a board that I've ever had working with the new President's Institute. I think the first thing I would say is listen very carefully to your board and the search committee because they will have done a scan and know the institution in a very different way than probably the individuals on the, on the campus. So first and foremost, listen to that board's assessment of why they hired you. Um, what, what were they looking for and hoping for in your presidency? I listened very carefully to the chair, the incoming chair of the board when I arrived. And I really got the sense from him that he was looking to me for a vision that would keep Bay Path strong and focused and successful. And so I would say that's one important uh, thing I would do right away. Listen to your board, set those appointments with your board members, get to know who they are, why they're passionate about the institution and what they've learned being a board member about the institution. Then I would listen to your key constituents on campus. I did in my first probably three months I had faculty dinners at, the, at my home to get to meet faculty in small groups. I was inviting staff members in. I was visiting CEOs of companies to get a sense and flavor of the region and what the region needed for uh, jobs and what kind of skill sets they were looking for. And so the individuals internally who are your key stakeholders, your faculty, your staff, um, your own executive team, but then branch out and listen to the regional leaders um, who will also give you a sense of perception. The one question I asked every CEO is, so what is your perception of Bay Path? What do you think are their strengths and their weaknesses? And how can we help you 
you know, achieve the employment base that you need? And then finally, what were the skill sets that you were looking for? So I think it's, it's a listening tour, uh, because once you have that information, then you can begin to vision. And, and you know, we, did, we never used the word strategy or vision. We, we just said we were musing about the future uh, because I'm, I think people were fearful of a new president and what was she going to do. So I tried to listen and, and most of all, what was the mission? Combined all of that together and began to set some real key strategies for the future. But it was with, you know, faculty and staff who were on the campus that we put that strategy together. Mm, boy, yeah, and I, you know, I'm struck by you've used the word listen several times already in this podcast, and that also, um, I think, uh, reflects a real openness to input from a lot of different sources. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting to think about the vision that has evolved during your time as president. And uh, it, it, it seems as if that vision has certainly been informed by a lot of listening that you've done, that others have done, um, and that it's, it's been an evolving and a really responsive kind of vision to what you have seen going on around you. I, I, and I would agree. I think listening is absolutely critical. I think the other caveat I would add to the listening is I have always said from the very first day I arrived, I will listen and I will attempt to insert, involve um, your ideas. But there will be moments in my presidency where we probably won't always agree on what the best step forward might be. And I ask you to give me the permission to use my best judgment at the time that will always be based on what is good for the student and what is good for the long-term viability of this institution. And I think by being very vocal and uh, constant with that message that also has said to individuals, well, I didn't agree with her, uh, but this is the way we're going. And most of them have stayed on that path with me. Uh, but you have to be upfront. Listening is probably the most important characteristic of a president. But in the end, that person has the responsibility to do what they believe is right. Um, and that may not always be in concert with the majority uh, feelings. Mm -hmm. Well, transparency is the second thing you're talking yeah. about. So you you listen, but you've also been very transparent about the fact that you may not always be able to accommodate what everybody wants. Um, and uh, another important thing that I'm hearing you say is that you also always tie it back to what's in the best interest of the student and in the institution for the long run. And I've seen you do that time and again. And um, you know, it, you do have a reputation as a very innovative and a bold leader. And not everybody, not everybody has that, um, that strength, if you will, to, to be bold, especially when times are tough and there's so much pressure to either go with what everybody is thinking or, um, or simply to hunker down. So I'm, 
I have you always been this way? You know, and I, I try to think about what what would Carol Leary have been like as a young yeah. a young person? Yeah. Or is it something that evolved as you were in the role over time? Oh, that is a, a, a really interesting way of putting it. The youth with did it evolve? And I think it's a little bit of both. I was deeply loved as a child and grew up in a very strong family unit. And so we always felt we could do whatever we wanted to do, not, you know, in terms of uh, everything we wanted to do, but we were given the self-confidence to, to lead. And from a very young age, I could see people reacting to perhaps some of that self-confidence and leadership skills. And then I was nurtured uh, to keep going. I think starting with a strong family unit and then all my life I have had caring people, particularly my husband, Noel, who has been beside me, um, encouraging me, deep, deep, deep friendships. You know, I, I, I would say if I counted maybe 10 strong, strong friendships over my lifetime that I have never lost and they've always been there, that has been important. I have deep faith. Um, I know that I'm not always going to make right decisions. I know that I'm not always going to be successful, but there's something in my DNA that allows me to just get right back up and face the next challenge. And as I said at the beginning, I think it's part of that positive mindset. Mm -hmm. And I have been told I have an extraordinary energy level. <laughs> and I, I do. I have an extraordinary energy level. And when there is a challenge before me, and it is a hard one, there is, I, I sort of set a time and I say, I can make it till the end of this month when these <laughs> things will be done. And I just am forceful with my own personality. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, and I know, I know that to be true. <laughs> <firsthand. Yeah. laughs> so. Yes, yes. Well, so with that in mind, what gives you hope as you look to the future? And as you think about a small mission focused institution like BayPath, um, how does a school like BayPath carve out a sustainable future um, that will take us well into? into the future? Well, first and foremost, I am so glad that I was here at this moment in higher ed where I'm a traditionally liberal arts educated student and graduate. And I'm at this moment in higher ed where I think there with online education, with the, the term unbundling higher ed, short-term certificates, I think we're at a very crucial moment in higher ed. And I think I am very, very hopeful for the future because I think there are very smart people in the industry and they will figure this out, what's going to be the best model for the future. So how do you sustain at Bay Path, you know, our mission focus of being an all women and, and pave a way forward? I would say constant planning. Uh, never be without a plan, never be without a financial plan that parallels that. I would say don't get into heavy debt. I think the universities that spent a fortune on buildings and debt are now questioning, are they going to be using those buildings in the same way they envisioned those buildings? Um, so I think it's just constantly keeping in touch with the external world. What are the trends? Not being afraid 
to step maybe sometimes out of the usual and into the unusual and just surround yourself with the best people. And I think you'll be able to keep your mission focus. And here is the other thing about the time we're at. We don't have to be huge universities. There are mega universities today and we're all frightened we're gonna be eaten up by them. But I think there will always be a place for that niche, that absolute niche institution that has carved out a mission and has figured out how to make sure their finances and their planning and their future somehow parallel each other and that, you know, it's sustainable, that it's absolutely sustainable. Mm. Well, and I, I'm, that actually gives me um, great hope as well, because I, like you, I, I, I want to believe that there is a future um, for schools like Bay Path, because you and I both know the number of students who uh, have been transformed as a result of the unique kind of experience and support they've received at Bay Path. And um, one of the wonderful things about the American higher ed system is the diversity of institutions and the fact that there is a place for everybody. Um, so that is a that is a very hopeful um, a hopeful way to think about about the future. And could I add, Melissa, a little yeah. bit to this that it may not be when I say the model may not be the same in the future. I and and you and I and and the executive team have talked about this, um, and I think we've even written about it that it may mean that smaller institutions gather together in some affiliation mm -hmm. where there are shared expenses. And we've done this at Bay Path with the five privates in our area to do purchasing together, but it could even be broader. How can we join as an affiliated group of small privates, each keeping our independence and being part of a bigger whole that allows us to have scale, allows us to cut expenses that are duplicate or, or duplicate, uh, you know, services, there mm -hmm. probably is a way in the future where we can keep our independence, keep our mission, and still be part of something bigger. And in the last couple of years, as you know, because you've been a key part of this, we've been part of some consortiums and affiliations that think this way as well. And that could be a future for the small privates. Mm, for sure. And that is a, that, that too is a very hopeful hopeful way to think about how do you retain what's best while building strength in partnership for the future. So um, I, I, I want to ask you, I, you another, another unique thing about you and your presidency is the fact that you have interviewed nearly every new employee who's been hired at Bay Path. Uh, why, why has that been important to you? Oh, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Um, it's important because in those early days when we only had 19 full-time faculty and you know 50 to 100 staff members maybe for 450 students, we I wanted to know who was coming into the university or the college at the time. And I felt it was important for every new employee to meet me as president, understand the values, what drove me, talk about what our environment was, and make them feel that they were part of an important mosaic, a community mosaic where all of us were part of the success of our students and all of us were part of the success of our institution. And so it built a culture over the years where I was able to say, you know, 
this is not going to be the environment for everybody. You know, no one's watching the clock and everybody is working very hard and we're very innovative and entrepreneurial and it's an idea a minute. And if you like that type of environment, you're going to do very well. So I tried to give a little bit of the culture that was developing, but also let them know that they could be an important part. And I said, when you hear something that you don't like, make sure you tell your supervisor, but don't leave the monkey on the back. Give an idea, a recommendation for improvement. And so in those conversations, Melissa, I learned so much personal as well as professional about the people. And I haven't been able to do every single person in the last two years, as you know, as we've grown and we've been hiring so many people. But I think it helped to create the culture of innovation and entrepreneurship and to create the sense of what's valued at this institution. Because I always ended by saying we are very student-centered and every decision we make is about our students and they are not perfect. I told, I would say they are not perfect. You're gonna have students that will be in your offices complaining, but then you'll have students writing you the most beautiful message, thanking you on email. But it, it gave them a sense of values, the momentum, it gave them a sense of culture and that we were an innovative entrepreneurial um, feeding ground for good ideas for education. Mm. Well, and what a, what a wonderful thing, especially for a new president to do as you're getting to know the campus and um, trying to set that tone um, and reinforce the culture. Um, you, it, it's, you know, I don't know, I don't know of any other president who can claim to have <laughs> interviewed uh, every new employee for the number of years that you did. And employees talk about it. They talk about the fact that they had an opportunity to sit with the president and that really I think in terms of hiring people, that has really had an impression on them as well, that if, if that's the level of care that people get, this must be a pretty good place to work. Yes, and we all model, right? We all model people. Yep. And remember yep. I mentioned that vice president that was my mentor at Simmons? Yes. I was interviewed as a director at Simmons, a director level. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. why are the president and vice president interviewing me? But I never mm -hmm. forgot it. And that's why I modeled it when I came. So I give credit to Priscilla McKee, who was that mentor for me all those years ago. And I loved meeting everybody. I really loved meeting everybody. And, you know, that meant groundskeepers and faculty members and financial aid directors and, you know, the matrons. I, I, I do think people were surprised they were meeting with the president as one of their final interviews. Yeah, and they never forget it. Now, you always end your interviews, I know, because I co-interview with you sometimes uh, with new employees by asking them to tell you something that is important for you to know about them and that may not be obvious or even found on the resume. So I want to end our interview by turning the tables and asking you that same question. What would you want our listeners to know about you especially as you are in the midst of this really big transition in your own life? I would probably say um, that I am very proud of my Italian heritage and the family that uh, 
I was blessed with as a child and even today with my sisters and 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 Noel's family and that it helped shape my love of life, uh, my appreciation for family and my um, just love of new ideas because mm -hmm. we we always were reading as children, always going to the library. I can still see my mother hand in hand going to the library in the summers and reading. So I would let them know that I am very proud of that Italian heritage and the upbringing that I had and the people that surrounded me as a young child. And then the question about transition, I would say I am leaving this presidency with a great sense of satisfaction that I was blessed to have given been given this opportunity and that I am so excited about the future years in retirement with my husband and family and friends, and that I hope to keep my colleagues close uh, for the rest of my life. Mm. Oh, well, that is a wonderful note to end on indeed. Carol, thank you again for being with us, for sharing your wisdom and insights about leadership and innovation with our ingenious you audience. We certainly do wish you all the best as you begin this new chapter in your life. It's so well-deserved. Thank you, Melissa. Melissa Morris-Holson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with negotiation and conflict resolution expert, author, and co-founder of Harvard's renowned negotiation program, Dr. Joshua Weiss. These are difficult days for higher ed leaders, and opportunities for conflict greet us on a daily basis. According to Dr. Weiss, the most effective leaders don't shy away from conflict, but instead embrace it and make it work for them. Subscribe now to be sure you don't miss out on this conversation and Dr. Weiss's insights for how to proactively manage conflict and boost your leadership effectiveness in the process. For now, thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.